This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And stepping into the Mike Hogan chair, we have a really fun and special guest, Griffin Newman. Hi. Hi. Hello, everybody. Hi. Uh, It's such a pleasure to be here. Uh, Griffin, if people are listening to this podcast, they probably know you from the Blank Check podcast, which is you and David Sims, who's also a previous guest on this show and is as obsessive about uh, words in Hollywood as we are. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you're also on a a TV show. I hear that that's a thing that people watch. It's a web series. Let's be honest. Let's call it what it is. It's a (laughs) web series on Amazon. It's It's a bookstore produced web series uh, called The Tick, yeah, which season two came out uh, April 5th. So all uh, 22 episodes are streaming now on Amazon. And Amazon is, of course, what Awesomeness TV became, right? They yes. rebranded. <laughs> yes. Speaking of web series. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Griffin, we brought you in basically to help us talk about all the nerdy stuff going on in the world right now, including mm-hmm. Avengers Endgame, which you haven't seen, but Joanna and Richard have, and we're going to discuss later in the show in a spoiler-free capacity. So right. don't turn For off your podcast. Yes. Yeah, please listen and don't be afraid. We are not going to spoil anything for you. Uh, we also want to get into the can lineup, which uh, was announced recently. But really to start, Griffin, we brought you here to talk about one thing and one thing only, which is the Fast and Furious franchise. I think you're most famous for. <laughs> yeah, the thing I'm most famous for is liking the Fast and Furious <laughs> you're franchise. You're famous for not being in a movie. I'm very famous for failing to get into this franchise. Uh, it is my number one goal. Uh, every time there's a new film in pre-production, I, I start a campaign again. Um, so I'm currently in the sort of exploratory committee phase of trying to figure out the best way to get through to Vin Diesel. Um, but uh, yes, it, this is my favorite film franchise. Um, and it's it's one that uh, I feel like many people, it snuck up on me. Uh, I remember seeing the first one uh, because I lost a fight with my brother about which movie we went to see. It my was a drag race. You mean. <laughs> it was a drag race, right. Uh, the, uh, the handkerchief dropped and he won. Uh, no, but I want to see Dr. Doolittle too, and he fought hard for Fast and Furious, and I sat there and went, that's a little better than I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, skipped uh, too fast. 
uh, saw Tokyo Drift because I think whatever movie I want to see at that time, Nacho Libre was sold out. And then at three, I was like, I'm kind of into this. Four, I saw opening night and was like, wait, this rules. Uh, then went back and watched two. And then it's just grown in my esteem since then. So there's a sliding doors reality where you've seen Dr. Doolittle 2 and Nacho Libre and just right. Fast and Furious. You know, the other one I think by. we were sold out of was uh, uh, Adventureland on opening oh, night yeah. of, of Fast Ampersand Furious. I saw of something's got to give movie. because Master and Commander was sold out. Right, <laughs> so, and that kind of defined who you were. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but there are all these Something's got to give and Master and Commander have so much in common, though. Right. So it's, it's really true. like you saw the same thing. Right, but the, the things that I find so interesting about the Fast and Furious franchise are like, A... It's such a weird piecemeal franchise because you had three original films that kind of are disconnected from each other. Then the fourth one is just putting all the pieces back on the table. It's like trying to sort of soft reset things back to the status quo. And then five is like it felt to me like uh, a year before the Avengers, the same sort of payoff as the Avengers of finally everything is in place now where you can have this kind of a static, uh, humongous uh, sort of team up movie. Um, and then the other crazy thing is that uh, every single entry in the series has a different title structure. So, Griffin, the reason we wanted to talk about it this week in particular is because the Hobbs and Shaw trailer came out last week. Mm-hmm. And speaking of different title treatments and how the franchise has gone in different directions, this is the first, well, I guess Tokyo Drift was kind of a spinoff, but this is the next spinoff in the franchise? This is the first proper spinoff because Tokyo Drift was sort of seemed like their attempt to make it into an anthology series Mm. where the only linking element was cars but then by the end of Tokyo Drift you tied it back in this is the first time they've consciously pushed something into a a different lane if you will it's taken a different exit off the highway Uh, and a different title structure which is uh, Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw (laughs) right as if Fast and Furious is an entity that can present something. It's, right. Yeah. It, is, yeah. it is cordially, yes. Because it's also going to be the umbrella under which they release this like female-fronted Fast and Furious spinoff that they're doing. Right. As someone who reads the Fast and Furious tea leaves as much as I do, it seems like the plan is to end the series proper at 10. Just mm. a gentleman's 10, and then from there it's going to be a bunch of sort of... Uh, sort of tendrils of different connected things. At this point, the mythology has become so rich. There are so many different characters who have come and gone and so many different satellite cities and countries and like aspects to the car world that they do have a lot of free reign to do this. But I think the mainline franchise has been about Familia, as anyone who loves these movies will tell you. There are these weird... I mean, I say that uh, they, they've sort of event, essentially become Bollywood films only minus the musical numbers. Because the thing I love about this franchise is it's just your bully bays of, it's like soap opera drama and action and like really dense mythology and romance and high comedy. It's like every genre put into one, but it still remains very character based. So Hobbs and Shaw, when they announced it, was a little nerve wracking to me because my thought was if you remove the sort of everything from the franchise, does it have the same power? That having been said, any defense I had against this movie was gone the second I watched this four-minute trailer. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good trailer. It's a really, really good 
trailer and you watch the trailer and every 20 seconds you go, oh man, this must be the final set piece. Right. I can't believe they're spoiling this. And then 20 seconds later, there's another thing where you go, well, this has to be the final set piece. And if the game is now that they can sort of just do a cleaner, like antagonistic, I mean, it feels like your sort of classic 90s, like Stallone movies on steroids, yeah. which is a different vibe than the main films have. So I'm fine with that being its own thing. And as long as we get 9 and 10 ending the story, the grand saga in a properly emotional way, I'm happy for this series to continue living on in all these weird sort of offshoots. There's a Netflix series. Do you know about this? There's well, a, I created it, yes. Yes, so, right. Yeah, so, of yeah. course, you created it. But there's a dummy listing on Netflix that they haven't officially announced yet, which is an animated Fast and Furious series that is all of their nieces and nephews. And it's going <laughs> to be like Fast and Furious Junior with Katie, all of them it's, it's having family. like robot cars. Yeah, it's literally about... So or I like think, Muppet Babies? Yeah, but it's not them as kids. It's like... Like uh, it, I guess it's more like Tiny Toon Adventures, where all those characters sure. are ostensibly related to the bugs famous and all analogs, that. Yeah. right? But so if that's where they're going, where it's like you have your kids one where the cars talk, mm -hmm. and you have Hobbs and Shaw that's just a dick measuring contest for two and a half hours, uh, and you have your female fronted one, I'm fine with that. I just the the purity of of nine and ten, feeling like the the grand finale to this Greek opera that they've been making is is what's of the most importance to me um so i have um unlike Riff, i have zero emotional investment in the fast and furious franchise uh -huh. um i I, but, mean, I was once like you i get it yeah <laughs> <laughs> but i think they're a fun fine time of the movies and so like um i'm happy that they exist i'm happy to go see them i'm happy that they have essentially turned into their own superhero franchise mm -hmm. sort of as you alluded to like these characters defy any law of gravity or physics or like mortality and stuff like that so you can just like have characters come back from the dead and it doesn't really make sense because you know it's that soap opera logic but it's also that comic book logic and i think it's incredible that universal has created for itself out of like whole cloth this uh superhero franchise which is all anyone wants to see these days anyway um and the fact that they are ambitiously spinning it out into many tendrils as griff put it like i think I'm like, go for it. It's so hard to try to compete with a Marvel machine for any studio. And the fact that the unlikely version over here, this is this like muscle car movie franchise is kind of an incredible feature of our, you know, of our current movie landscape. So my question, a very serious question sure. to you, now that we're talking about spinoffs and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, so recently you had a video uh, from uh, the BuzzFeed show AM to DM yeah. that I think went sort of viral where you were basically, I mean, making a case for why Vin Diesel's the greatest movie star in the world mm -hmm. and why you should, why you want to be in one of these films, which yeah. I think was r r well stated and I hope it gets to him. Thank you. And it's the beginning of a long campaign. Right. Yeah. Now, with the spinoffs considered mm -hmm. would you settle for a spinoff no i no. gotta be in a movie with vin right it has to be vin and i i think vin is the mothership would you voice so vin's nephew on the netflix show 100 <laughs> percent. and please i have made entrees I'm in that sure direction that. i've, I've been investigating for like, years griffin seriously yeah I mean, I have I have so many friends who the second they hear any Fast and Furious scoop, call me up and repeat the thing to me. I like I got ears everywhere trying to figure out the comings and goings of the franchise. But for me, Vin is the mothership. Mm. I think he's going to do two more films and get out. That seems to be his intention. Uh, if you watch every one of his videos on Instagram, as I do, 
Uh, and I, th I think I want to be part of, you know, in the same way that Star Wars, that we're ending the Skywalker saga, but Star Wars will continue as a franchise. That Endgame is perhaps the end of the proper original Avengers saga, but uh, the MCU will continue. Uh, I, I think Fast and Furious 10 will be the end of the Dominic Toretto saga, the Toretto family saga, and then the franchise will continue in other ways. But for me, I want to get in before the door closes on, on what I think is the proper heart of the thing. Before they switch from Diesel to Unleaded or whatever. Yes, exactly. <laughs> 10 comedy points. I'm ready to spin zone this. Are you ready? Okay. Uh... Tick star Griffin Newman says he's too good for the female-fronted Fast and Furious. <laughs> I mean, you, you nailed it. And you read between the lines, and that's exactly the message I want to get across. Speaking of summer movies, you have predicted, and I agree with you on this, uh -huh. that the new Lion King, which is not live action. Uh, no, it's the an new animated CGI yeah. Lion King will be the new highest grossing movie of all time. Yes. Uh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was standing behind this. The last trailer kind of scared me mm -hmm. because I think it's a little worrying that they seem this afraid of showing the animals talking. Mm -hmm. Good point. I think at this point in the marketing cycle, mm -hmm. even though they were holding back a little bit and they used a lot of voiceover, Jungle Book was showing more. I think Jungle Book was a little more stylized. And because, weirdly, there was a live-action character, they could get away with the characters being a little more cartoony and sort of anthropomorphized in their movements. I The last trailer made me a little scared because mm. it feels like they're going full, like, planet Earth realism. The animals are moving like animals. Their faces are structured like animals. Mm. They're not super expressive. And I think there are less than four seconds of sync dialogue in that trailer and not even one complete line. Like they'll cut into a middle of a line mm -hmm. and you'll see Scar saying two or three words. Uh, that worries me a little bit. I do think everyone is underestimating just how big this movie is gonna be uh, because it is not a franchise. And in our franchise era where these things, our biggest blockbusters also have people who are teetotalers. You know, there are people who fundamentally are never gonna see a Star Wars movie, never see a Marvel movie. Uh, Lion King hasn't been blitzed and watered down in that same kind of way. The fact that there's like a kid show and there were direct-to-video sequels doesn't really diminish the main thing. I think it also is at just the right point in sort of its legacy cycle where you have so many generations that feel so emotionally invested in it. And of all the Disney Renaissance movies, I think it is the one that is least gendered. So mm -hmm. I feel like there was often, you know, the princess movies did really well. When Disney tried to go more in a boy's direction, it usually wouldn't work as well, like Hercules. Um, but Lion King was the one that was like kind of completely down the middle in terms of just hitting everybody. I think everyone forgets just how big that movie was when it came out, uh, how well the 3D re-release did, which was insane. Because they re-released it in 3D and it did another like 97 million domestic and a couple hundred overseas in countries where The Lion King had not come out originally. Mm -hmm. Countries that weren't uh, developed as sort of movie-going audiences yet. Um, so it has sort of global recognition in the way that, like Star Wars doesn't. Like Star Wars never came out in China. So the new Star Wars movies don't do well there. But when they re-released Lion King in China, it blew up. Um, you can do. You can also do it in any language. Yes, it's so easily translatable because you just do a different voiceover. Right, and I think that music is so effective. Yeah, uh, and I think you look at uh, just how Beauty and the Beast performed, and uh, I, I see no reason why this wouldn't kind of double that. 
Right. Now, I have a one. I have a question as the the, the token parent on this podcast who yeah. has a kid who might like to see this. Like, we worry about the anthropomorph or the non anthropomorphized animals singing and talking. Is this movie not going to be scary as hell? That's like, you my think about other the wildebeest fear. chase. Yeah. Like, like that's scary in the animated version. I can't imagine like taking a young kid to see that, and I wonder how that's going to cut into the box office. Uh, I would not see Lion King when it first came out because I was too scared by people describing the wildebeest chase. Uh, like I, I saw the musical on Broadway years before I saw the movie uh, because I didn't want to see that scene. That is the other risk of making it that sort of uh, photorealistic. Mm-hmm. And not just photorealistic, but that you watch the trailer and you're like, oh, so they're really committed to the characters not moving in a way that those animals couldn't move in real life. That might hamstring it a little bit emotionally. Yeah. It might make the talking scenes feel weird, which will be a problem, and I think it's also going to make the scary stuff feel really visceral. Uh, So that's my question mark right now, is how well they're able to thread the needle. Um, I also, as we're talking right now, like 48 hours before uh, Endgame comes out, it does feel like the the hype balloon is so big on this thing that I think uh, Endgame might also just outperform everyone's expectations, even the most out-of-control expectations. But, you know, there are people who are never going to see a Marvel movie, period. Yeah. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz, um, who should be the mayor of New York. We all support that. we support that. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. Nikki, yes, it's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOC. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? What's the right amount of socializing for you? And how do you recharge? Maybe you thrive around people, or maybe you need more alone time. Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash littlegoldmen today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash little gold men. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. 
From lowbrow to highbrow to in-between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. So, Griffin, this feels like a good time then to transition into talking about Marvel and mm-hmm. Endgame. Um, you've not seen the film. You're seeing it tonight as we record. Um, but you have been revisiting these titles um, yeah. on the sort of Patreon special uh, stream of, of Blank Check, um, which are fun to listen to because it's just you and David and uh, your producer, Ben Hosley, um, just just talking as you watch the movie. We do like live commentaries that end up yeah. also being a lot of sort of digressions of things we think about while watching those movies. About you getting hot in the house and needing to open a window and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Right. Having an allergic yeah. reaction to David's <laughs> yeah. Christmas tree. Um, so what have you, cause I know I, I, I correct me if I'm framing this incorrectly, mm-hmm. but like, uh, you're a fan of the franchise, I think. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I'd say with, with major reservations, I am a fan. So what has, has re-watching these movies in anticipation of this new one kind of unlocked anything or changed your perception at all? Um, It's interesting. I mean, I feel like it's like it helped and hurt the movies uh, simultaneously. You know, the thing that really kind of struck me was um, there was a uh, – one of the trailers they released recently – where the trailer was like two minutes of recounting in chronological order all of the the Marvel films, the 21 films leading up to this one, and then 30 seconds of Endgame footage at the end of it. And it was sort of like, here's like 10 seconds of montage stuff from Iron Man and then that title card. Here's 10 seconds of montage stuff from Iron Man 2, title card, and so on and so on. And watching them all cut together like that, it is uh, crazy how much they kind of just look like one continuous movie. Uh, with different design elements and different sure. cast members, but in terms of like composition, in terms of tone, in terms of the types of dialogue they were using in the montage, uh, you know, and and people complain about the fact that the way there is kind of a Feige house style. I mean, it feels like all those films are put through one final conveyor belt where they're like color corrected to look like each other. Um, and that is simultaneously very impressive and a little bit frustrating. Mm-hmm. It's you know certainly something that tees Endgame up to be humongous and be very satisfying to people because the whole key to this franchise is that they have made people feel like it is one continuous 22-film franchise and not just several connected satellites. I think Phase 2 is when they kind of stretch out. It felt like when Feige was a little worried about fatigue. And Phase 2, I think they start to branch out and feel a little different. And then once they sort of lock on to Winter Soldier, it's like from Phase 3 on, it's like, oh, this is what the house style is. Mm -hmm. Everything is just slight modulations off of this. Once the Russos came in. Once the Russos came in. And it makes sense because they are TV guys. They're guys who have been like showrunners, executive producers, and have done a bunch of pilots. And it's like, how do you make this thing sustainable? You know, how do you make a model that other people can jump into and not rock the boat too much? It's funny because so when we did um, we did this fun not to like blow our own horn or whatever, but we did this like fun look back at the MCU cover story um, for the magazine that Mm -hmm. I got to write, which was cool. And um, but I talked to the Russos a lot about this idea of like this big debate of is the MCU or is the Avengers, the decade of Avengers, um, a TV show or a movie? You know, for mm-hmm. to, to a certain degree, I find this debate a little tiresome because it's a little bit like who cares what you call it? Like, honestly, I think it's really silly when people get sort of worked up about it. And it's like the inverse of like logging Twin Peaks, the return on your letterbox. Like, who really cares? <laughs> yeah, who really cares? Right. right? Um, but at the same time, you're you're absolutely right that the Russos are TV guys, and so they bring this sort of TV logic to the 
So I asked them, I was like, is Endgame a series finale? Do you approach it like a series finale? A two Or Infinity War and Endgame, is this a two-part series finale? And, you know, they were very much like yes and no. Yes, yeah. absolutely, yes. No, because we then have to... In, within the fabric of those of the stories we're telling in these two Capper films, spin off into the future as well. Like we have to hold the strings of the future of the franchise, which I think once you see Endgame, it like it becomes very apparent though the conscious way in which they're trying to like pivot the future of their business in terms of like the movies that they have coming, sure. very specifically the Disney Plus projects that they have coming. Like they have a responsibility to hold all of those things. And sometimes when they do those kinds of pivot point movies. Um, like Ultron was, uh, the... The, you know, the seams are a little too apparent. I think yeah. with Ultron, it was just like a little too obvious the way in which they were trying to lift where they were going, especially like with the Thor stuff, mm-hmm. like where they were trying to going from there. And what I appreciate about Infinity War and Endgame, and maybe it's because they're like super long and two movies, so they have a lot more space to do it, is that they have room for the emotional, weighty goodbye to some of the actors who have decided they no longer want to be part of this franchise. Mm-hmm. And then they also have room for the pivot. And it all kind of, for the most part, works together. I would say I think Endgame clocking in at three hours is still, it's too much movie. Mm-hmm. I really think it is. But I, I, you can sort of forgive an overindulgent, uh, you know, the end to something that's been this big and this successful, you know. But it is a weird thing, as you said, because it's like, I, I feel like I see people writing so much about, like, what an incredible finale to this 22 film, this 10-year legacy. And it's like, well, it's like essentially like canceling Law & Order when you have two other Law & Order shows mm-hmm. on the right, air. Right. Yeah. You know, you're canceling what the original recipe was. But at this point, you've already overlapped with a bunch of new recipes that are running simultaneously. Um, I do The thing that gets me excited, because I was uh, very frustrated with Infinity War. It felt uh-huh. like the exact kind of comic book I didn't like reading. <laughs> the, the sort of this is so important event um, that uh, sort of the, the shoe leather of the consequences of the stakes overwhelmed the, the sort of emotional story or the character. Um, and the thing I get really excited about reading all the reviews, and I know, like, you know, Richard, you're less a fan of these movies than than you are, Joe. Uh, you both like them to varying degrees. But reading both of you guys and also reading a bunch of other people saying, like, yeah, it works. You cry a bunch. Uh, whether or not it's sort of manipulative, I'm very excited by the idea that the movie seems to be running on that much of an emotional track. Yeah. Because Infinity War, to me, felt like, um, I, I can't engage with this emotionally because there's too much going on. When right. the stakes are this high, when there are this many characters, when you're threatening to kill this many of them off, like, the, the snapping had no effect on me. Because Zero. it was just like, well, this is just like a, a one-hour guitar solo. If I'm watching 30 people turn to dust in a row, none of it means anything to me. Um, well, and especially when you know it's part one of two parts and when you know right. that certain actors have other movies in the pipeline. Right. You're like, this is a meaningless cliffhanger. Just like killing Jon Snow on Game of Thrones is a meaningless cliffhanger to me. Like, this means right. nothing to me because I know comic books and I know it's going to be undone. The only thing that landed for me and I think for a lot of people is like... Tom Holland. Tom, Tom Holland's right, but moment. But that's purely an acting beautiful. moment. I mean, that's the and thing. It was, like it was, an, like, it was right. an improv moment. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, that landed, but other than that, it doesn't land at all. And so, right, that, and that lands yeah. purely because that dude has the goods. Like, yeah. like, that's purely an actor 
performance character connection moment, which is, I mean, why these films have worked in the first place. The reason why this franchise took off is because of how unexpected the sort of performance angles were in Iron Man. And when these movies work, they're tapping into that thing. And right. so hearing, you know, Endgame is stripped down, it's the smaller cast, it's really running off of the history that these characters have with each other, that the actors have with each other, the chemistry they have with each other, and sort of emotionally reflecting on all of that. That is the movie I want to see. That's exciting and, to me. Yeah, and to to lean in even like heavier on the um, Game of Thrones analogy because that's all that's on my mind these days um, is this idea of like the permanent stakes of this movie because like right. when you do something like you kill Ned Stark, spoiler alert for season one of Game of Thrones, and you're not bringing him back, mm -hmm. that lands and that matters narratively. And so when there are big emotional beats tied to the fact that this, at least for some people, is an ending of sorts, you believe that those characters might like actually be gone for good. Yeah. yeah, it feels like it matters. I mean, there's a thing I've talked about on, on other things because uh, uh, going around trying to promote a superhero TV show, mm. you end up having to comment on the world of superhero media at large a lot. Uh, it's like this weird game of constantly trying to define why you deserve to exist in the landscape or what makes you different or what, what makes you the same or any of those things. Um, the thing that I find very exciting about the MCU uh, and we're finally getting to this fulcrum point now where they could choose to honor this is in the comic books, characters die all the time. And they are revived, or it turns out the death was a fake-out, or there was a clone who has the exact memories, so they reset, and, you know, Armin Tamzarian-style choose to never acknowledge it ever again. Mm -hmm. um, because it is easy enough for any new writer coming onto a book going, well, I grew up loving Captain America. I don't want to write the Bucky book. I'm bringing Captain America back to life. Right. And it doesn't cost any money, any extra money, to hire someone to draw Steve Rogers again. Um, but... I think there is potential within this franchise to, when characters leave, uh, have that actually be permanent. Um, because, you know, if, if anyone in this cast doesn't want to do a movie ever again, I pray that they will not, five years down the line, hire someone else to play them. That they will do the other thing that happens in comics, which is other people take up the mantle. You know, as we look back on this decade, a key to, you know, the Marvel Studios success is not like when I was talking to a bunch of people about Kevin Feige, a lot of them called him a fanboy. And it's so funny because I just don't think of him that way because right. he's not like he's not like the kid who grew up with the action figures. He's, if he's a fanboy of anything, it is of this kind of populist filmmaking storytelling. He understands the fabric of blockbuster culture. And so the fact that he was able to approach these comic book stories in a way that made them so broadly appealing. And it's not like no one has ever done this before, you know, like Superman was huge. Tim mm -hmm. Burton's Batman was huge, you know, like the dark Knight, et cetera, et cetera. People have done it, but he was just like, okay, first and foremost, we're telling a story about that is, you know, blockbuster story, fun, fine time of the movies for people. Secondly, I'm going to do this thing that people haven't done in quite such an ambitious way, which is import this comic book idea of knitting it all together, mm -hmm. either loosely or in a tight way if I decide it needs to be tight. You know, and like those two things combined, which is what it, like Marvel did that is so different and also something that like no one has been able to emulate because no one is approaching it the way that with that sensibility, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, if you look at the DC films, which, you know, Christopher Nolan sort of broke before there was even a plan to make anything out of them because yes. it was like, well, we're going to double down. It's going to be serious. Right. We're going to avoid exactly what Feige and Marvel have 
run toward, which right. is like the silliness, the sort of p- bright colors and the p- the sort of pop sensibility. But also the issue of him setting out that sort of creed and then leaving. Like he right. wasn't that hands-on. He wasn't the guy fully steering the ship. He just kind of came to them and said, this is what I think you should do with Superman. Here's the basic outline and Goodbye. now I'm out. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. But, but, and then you see sort of like the, the DC franchise struggling to kind of find its own identity because inherent in the the way that they approached the material was i don't want to say a disdain but a certain like embarrassment uh, yeah. i think embarrassment, mm-hmm. embarrassment I, I, I think is, yeah. yeah like like no no i know superman can be silly but like here's a serious version of it and it just doesn't work in the same way because well because you don't have nolan but also because this stuff is fantastical it's it's a guy with a cape who can fly and see you know like it's like you there's a, it's really hard to make serious and i think that with, with something like aquaman which i think you know wonder woman almost feels like a marvel movie but aquaman is very much in the dc world but but i think more successful because it's just like okay let's create this on its own terms and like yeah. let's have it be silly and painterly and funny and weird and and i think shazam yeah. functions the same way mm-hmm. and i was very impressed with the fact that shazam despite what I had heard, does coexist with the other films. I mean, Shazam fully references Man of Steel mm-hmm. and Batman vs. Superman and Justice League and all those things, but isn't worried about being the same kind of movie in any way, shape, or form. Now, that but it's also like, but it also has the meta of like, not not only do these movies exist, these or these universes exist, like not only does Henry Cavill's Superman suit exist or whatever, mm-hmm. but like, um, then there's like the fanish culture Culture around it like you right. can be a superman fan so it's so it's it's like taking the the existence of those films and then not treating it as seriously and that's what's so beautiful chef's kiss about shazam right yes well and i think you know this is the key difference is weirdly the dc films have now become more director driven i think because they realized uh after two failed attempts to be like, is Zack Snyder the the Feige? No. Is Jeff Johns the Feige? No. What if there's no Feige? Let's steal Joss Whedon. uh, Right, right, right. right, right. So like, what if we just silo these off and we try to get directors with strong takes and we make different uh, sort of tonal films that can exist side by side with each other but don't need to be shaking hands constantly? And the Catch-22 with the Marvel films, the exact reason they're so successful is because of Kevin Feige. Because Kevin Feige is this like Louis B. Mayer- level genius you know the type of sort of grand overseer of uh film that we haven't seen in like decades especially in an era now where the people running film divisions tend to be people who come out of the business or tech worlds or the theme park worlds or what have you and aren't coming from a story place first and foremost when you hear about the tyrants of like old hollywood they always were story people even if they were disgusting cigar smoking like secretary slapping you know uh uh guys they their instinct was like you gotta make them love the story (laughs) and we've moved further and further away from that especially as people view franchises as like a tech play you know like it's a mathematical equation and feige really has his finger on the poles as a film fan as a guy who studied story first and foremost knowing how to make people connect with these things the the other end of that catch 22 is feige is the ultimate auteur of all of these movies Mm -hmm. you know and uh even black panther which feels like you know i'd say black panther guardians 2 the first avengers and um iron man 3 are the ones that feel the most individualistic to me the first iron man doesn't really count because it was setting the template um and even those films all feel like 
they're existing under Feige's watch. Yeah. You know, there's stuff like you watch the fight scenes of Black Panther and you watch the fight scenes in Creed. And you go like, well, so Kugler definitely got to tell the story he wanted to make. And Feige really got to design these set pieces. Well, I think beyond even just the set pieces, like which for sure, there, there's there his stamp all over it. But something that I like about Black Panther in a vacuum, but then sort of when I step back, I'm like, oh, that's too bad, is that Black Panther uh, uh, approaches some really interesting political mm-hmm. uh, ideas in terms of like, you kind the villain is right yeah. in a lot of ways. But then in order to fold Black Panther into the broader narrative, that gets kind of ironed out and it's like, well, no, like, you know, you know, T'Challa is the ultimate hero and, you know, whatever. Right. And so I think something that I, I guess I appreciate as a sort of, you know, a a viewer who wants to see some, consume something easily, uh, Infinity War and Endgame eschew almost all politics in the way that like Civil War or some of the other earlier films sure. got into where they're like, ooh, like what is our power in, in the world? And, and the more you ask you know, those questions, the the more questions arise. I mean, this is kind of the Zack Snyder problem of him being like, if you think Superman isn't embezzling money, wake up. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. Right, and the second you <laughs> sort of ground these guys in the minutia of like crappy human behavior and bureaucracy and government, the more the entire reality falls apart, mm-hmm. you know. Okay, all right. So let me let me if I can narrow this back down to yes. end end game uh, um, and say uh, maybe like two quick prompts, which is this: like uh, Griff, since you haven't seen it yet, and you already mentioned this a little bit in terms of emotional stakes, but like, what do you feel like you need end game to accomplish, sight unseen? And then maybe Richard and I can say whether or not we vaguely, without spoiling, whether or not we feel like it accomplishes that. Okay. I, I want to see a movie where the characters, and I know we got multiple plot lines here, so not everyone can get a full arc, but I want some sense, whether it's as a group or with a couple of the key characters, some sort of change of philosophy, of emotional status quo, of, of something where it feels like there has been some sort of uh, growth. Even yeah. the first Avengers. I feel like the first Avengers, Tony Stark uh, uh, deciding to go into space and potentially killing himself to try to stop the alien invasion is the first time he's made that kind of sacrifice. It's the first time that character hasn't been uh, totally selfish. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I kind of want, something yeah. like that. Well, I think, you know, you use the word decide. I think that, like, uh, without spoiling anything, like, characters in Endgame do decide things. Like, there is a kind of definitiveness to some choices, um or an acceptance of things they can't control, et cetera, um, that I think work really well. I think some characters are served better than others, mm-hmm. um, which I think you'll get get once you see the movie. What I mean by that, but like um, as a whole, and I'm, you know, I think Joanna, I'm a little higher on the movie than you are, but like as a whole, I, 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 the the word I kept coming to was satisfying. You yeah, know? Mm, that yeah, that's exciting to me, and and choices like that's the, the cleaner root of the thing I'm saying is sometimes it feels like in the most kind of um, perfunctory of these Marvel movies, that the characters are just on a conveyor belt that is driving them to whatever story point the larger universe needs to get to. And I just, I want my movies to have characters making active choices that define who they are, whether they're the right choice or the wrong choice. I want to feel like the character is steering the ship, not the sort of 10-year plan for the franchise. Yeah, I I think that... um you know, to echo Richard. Yeah, I think Richard might be a little higher on this, but I think in terms of the emotional satisfaction around 
most of, if not all of those choices that we see on the screen, um, it really does. It sits well. It sits well, and 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 it ends well. And um, I love the pivot points, and I love uh, the respect that this film pays some of its cast members. Cool. Absolutely. Yeah, cool. and 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 um, Josh Brolin is so goddamn good in that role. Like, it's crazy how yeah. good. I mean, not yeah. having seen this one, but it is kind of a uh, uh, crazy how uh, good he's been as Thanos. Uh, because it feels like that character is destined to be hollow, right? Exactly. You know, it, well, it, just it, like destroy thing. Like you know, he, right. he would he in in a in a lesser and in extant lesser movies, that yeah. character is just a complete blank. Yeah, yeah, and also it's hard to uh, make that character fully rounded in a film with so many other characters where he is not the main character. Mm-hmm. But he has really brought something to it, which maybe was him being able to field test a bunch of one-scene performances where then he figured out who the guy was. He's a, he's My a favorite, really good actor. Mm-hmm. My yeah. favorite aspect of this is is when I was talking to the special effects guys around uh, Oscar time, mm-hmm. and you know they they like created this new face mapping technology to capture Berlin's performance because like Thanos, let's be real, was an issue in earlier appearances because mm-hmm. he was like so blocky uh, the way they like rendered him in uh, earlier films of the franchise, and so I was I was terrified of Thanos being like the main antagonist yeah. of Infinity War, etc. Um, but they they developed this new face mapping technology, and one of the VFX guys was telling me that like they did these screen tests with Brolin um, where they were sort of showing him what the face mapping technology would would like look like mm-hmm. and they left it running between takes and just like sort of captured him naturally talking and then they showed it back to him and he completely modulated his performance because originally he was doing this like huge sure. mustache twitching I need to make it through this CG to make an impression performance and they showed him this technology and then he just sort of like turned it all down and was able to make it really subtle um, because the technology was available to him to be able to to like show that on this like big craggy purple canvas that they had you know that's fascinating yeah because I do think the sort of uh, Achilles heel of mocap uh, for most of the last 15 years uh, has been that it uh, it captures theatricality far uh, more successfully than subtlety and that right. the best mocap performances are usually characters that are large and uh, performers who are skilled at being able to do something honest at that kind of scale. But I think, you know, like Andy Serkis, who's the guy who's probably been able to give the most subtle mocap performances, when you watch the raw footage, he has such an understanding of this technology that what he's doing on set is actually pretty big. But he knows the exact size that's going to register in mocap as pretty small. And I feel like you watch like Avatar, where Zoe Soldana is really smart at controlling that dial. And that performance is really good. And Sam Worthington is uh, very often it feels <laughs> like that, that uh, sort of model is on like auto. Mm-hmm. Because uh, just being kind of stoic doesn't really translate in mocap. And it does feel like they found a way to make Thanos really nuanced. And Brolin is, you know, when given the chance, capable of being a very, very subtle, quiet, expressive actor. Well, um, I we could talk about this forever, I think, but mm-hmm. you know, we, we, you have to see the movie, so then we'll have you back on maybe for another <laughs> hour-long chat about this. Um, 
So to switch gears almost entirely, although, you know, we're probably not that far off from a Marvel movie being at Cannes, uh, the the venerable film festival uh, that happens in France in May uh, has announced their lineup. Um, both the official lineup has been announced and uh, a sidebar called the Director's Fortnite, which is only it's, it's 50 plus years old, but is only loosely actually affiliated with the festival uh the officially um yeah so the, those lineups are out and there's some exciting stuff and probably the most kind of curious and, and maybe interesting to our listeners is that the festival is opening with a jim jarmish zombie movie starring among many many other people selena gomez yeah 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 which i think is kind of fun i think it's uh fun i mean it's you know that uh, opening night slot has historically been kind of a death slot for serious films yeah so i feel like more and more over the course of the last decade they have tried to put sort of uh elevated popcorn fare into that slot mm-hmm. uh your uh kingdom of the crystal skull in theory sure yeah, uh, yeah. i think up was an opening night film or crystal skull wasn't an opening night but up i know was an opening night mm-hmm. film mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, Crystal Skull was a, uh, a gala spotlight or what have sure. you. Sure, yeah, out of competition kind right. of thing. Yeah. Right, right. Um, but uh, I, I think, you know, it's sort of become the spot for uh, sort of high art uh, sort of genre fare. Yeah, yeah. And, and so in a weird way, uh, a Jarmish zombie comedy feels like the perfect film to put in as, as an opening night. Well, it's also an interesting choice in that, you know, the festival uh, has been faced with a, something of an existential crisis in the past few years because um, Thierry Fermeau, who who runs the festival, in response to a lot of um, French exhibitors, cinema owners, has had to be anti-Netflix. And they, they tried one year to have Netflix in, in the competition and the logo got booed. It was a big thing. And then they said no. And, and in so doing, and in having a general aversion to Hollywood stuff, big you know they want big stars there but they don't want to become this festival like venice has become where it's all just an oscar clearinghouse they want to have a distinct kind of international profile and i think it's hobbled the festival some i mean i I appreciate their principle but uh you know you got to stay relevant and it's increasingly hard to make the case that can is the premier film festival Uh, when you have venice launching you know la la land and you know every other oscar movie in, in, in any given year um, so to open this year's festival with a big, splashy, star-driven English language zombie comedy, I think is a statement of like, no, no, we still have, you know, we still have our foot, at least, you know, partly in in like Hollywood as a kind of nebulous term. I think the problem is the the type of movie you're describing that they ideally want a major film with a major movie, a major director rather, mm-hmm. uh, making a major film with major stars. Um, that is kind of elevated and intellectual uh, is the exact kind of film that not only uh, studios are so rarely making, but their indie divisions are so rarely making and uh, independent financing companies are rarely making that I feel like you've seen more and more recently if the director has some passion project they've been trying to get off the ground for 20 years, they finally just get it made at Netflix or at Amazon or any of these places. Um, so the exact kind of American film they would want, and often, you know, uh, a foreign film with, with uh, uh, Okja or Roma uh, that they want to get in is only getting financed by Netflix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, it puts them in a difficult position the, the Jarmusch film is kind of a perfect solve for them in that sense. 
Yeah. So the Jarmish obviously jumps out immediately just because it has so many stars and it's a zombie comedy. But going down the, the list of the um, official selection that's in the main competition, um, there are a number of other really interesting titles. Uh, you know, Cannes is sort of known for they, they pick their 20 directors mm-hmm. and then every time that director has a film, it's automatically in. So it's pretty right. hard to get into the main competition having never been in it. It's kind of a weird catch-22. And it you has know. often largely been a boys' club oh, with, with few exceptions. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And and this year, unfortunately, is not much different. Uh, but one of the boys making a, a debut uh, in, in, in the main competition uh, is Iris Sachs, a great indie New York yes. filmmaker who made Love is Strange and... Um, Oh, what's that movie with Greg Kinnear? Uh, uh, little, little, little men. Yes, I want to say little yeah, boys. Yeah, it's not yeah, called yeah. little boys. It's called little men. <laughs> uh, Iris Sachs, who made Love is Strange and Little Men, uh, that was at uh, kind of Sundancing movies. Yeah. Um, and he's now in the main competition with a film called Frankie, and I believe that the reason he got in partly, well, he's a great filmmaker, is Huper. that he has Isabel Huppert in right. the lead. Right. So mm, you know, all the, 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 the Frenchies yeah, yeah. are like, well, uh, okay, c'est bon, you know, like. <laughs> But uh, but he was a guy. Uh, he not was a guy. He is a guy. I would love to see enter the regular rotation. Mm-hmm. If Upera is just the the key that allows him to open that door, he's a guy who has so consistently been making uh, phenomenal films on his own terms that feel completely unconcerned with the uh, state of American film around him. You know. Yeah. He's got such a clear voice and he's got such integrity. And uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm very excited for that. The one that jumps out to me is uh, the Lighthouse. Oh yeah, that's in the director's Fortnite, the sidebar. Yep. Right. Uh, the Robert Eggers film because that's a guy where I have no idea what his second film is going to look like. He made the the witch that was a big hit at Sundance a few years ago. Right. Yeah. But you watch that film and you go, okay, this is clearly a very strong director. But mm-hmm. what is his next movie? Right. He can't do this like, again. What's his sensibility? What you, you don't right, know. And they- They've released this photo of like a grizzled looking Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson like in hardcore seafaring seaworthy mode and it just like it looks amazing. <laughs> I'm like that photo alone I want to see why Robert Pattinson has that mustache. Um, yeah, yeah, and see. Pattinson has just become like one of the most exciting leading men uh mm-hmm. today. Uh kind of the last guy you would expect to become sort of like a con darling. Well, him and Kristen Stewart both. I mean, they're like the, the, the kids from Twilight said, okay. Were you the one who tweeted this out recently? What? Someone tweeted this out that like for how much the critical community mocked uh, uh, K-Stew and R-Pats during the peak of Twilight, they're kind of single-handedly keeping keeping challenging uh, world cinema alive oh, right fully. now. fully. Yeah, I mean, because these are people who made I, – I didn't tweet that, but I agree with it um, – you know uh, – by conservative estimates, at least $30 million each yeah. um, for doing the Twilight franchise. And we're like, okay, so I never have to work for money again. Yeah, if I, I if can I, just do know, whatever you know, I want. And, yeah, and exactly, that they yeah. almost, like, kind of speaking to that tweet, like, responsibly, yeah. we're like, okay, uh, Olivia Sayas, yes, we need you. We, you know, And then Pattinson made his choices, um, working with Cronenberg and other people. And it's like, good for you, kids. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, you did it, you know. And, and the French... Love that, 
You know, yes. they they love it in in a in a vaguer sense, but they love it in a specific sense, specific enough that Kristen Stewart is the only American actress to ever win an Olivier <laughs> right. for acting. Right. You know the uh, the biggest divide in my friendship with Richard Lawson and Katie Rich is that I don't really like the Lost City of Z or Z, and they love it uh, more than anything mm-hmm. in the world. That being said, uh, and it's it's like it's a challenge that we've worked through to uh-huh. maintain our friendship. But that being said, Robert Pattinson is so good in that movie yeah. and so good and just like any he's fantastic as as is, as his case too. So it's like, yeah, I, I I'm fascinated that this is the fallout of of the Twilight. Is is that's like one of the reasons why Richard, when you and Kim Collins did your you know like 25 instrumental scenes uh, for for our Hollywood issue this year, that like Twilight was on there, not just because of like what it did for YA culture, but like this gift that it gave to the yeah. art film world. Like you it know? gave us two crucial stewards of like international independent film. Um, can we talk about something that has no star power except the director behind it, or no American star power except the director behind it, which is the uh, the Terrence Malick film, and in Life? Yes. Do you guys have any like, thoughts well, on this? I, I, and, yeah, I, I'm know. glad you brought that up because it's a fascinating thing kind of talking about the broader conversation about can and celebrity and or lack thereof. Is you know Terrence Malick for years now has been like known as the guy who the only reason he gets films funded is because he gets Ben Affleck and Rachel McAdams stars and want every to work with movie him. star. Pitt, you yeah. know, even if they're just twirling in a goddamn field, which is the last <laughs> four movies he made, right. practically. Um, they're they're, they're, they're going to be involved because he, you know, he's a signature director and thus f- funding arrives. Mm-hmm. Malick has said, I believe, that phase of my sort of poetic wrestling with God and existence, yeah. I'm sort of like done with that a little bit. Right. And this film, um, which is a World War II drama... Um, he said is him trying to make a more straightforward right. narrative again, that he tried to hold himself to the standards of Badlands. Right, Where exactly. it's like a weird narrative, and it has odd side tangents, but it isn't just all internal monologues uh, over twirling. There is... Um, what's a, oh, a story. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah. Now, yeah. I love Malick. <laughs> He's one of my favorites. I got a little frustrated with him as everyone else did. Uh, I feel like I'm a bit of an outlier in that I think Knight of Cups is a masterpiece. Mm. Uh, my take is that it's live-action BoJack Horseman <laughs> and that people don't recognize that it's a comedy. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I to the wonder and uh, Song to Song tested me. Yeah. Uh, Tree of Life I like a little less than everyone else. Song to Song, a movie about a woman who's just discovered Windows for the first time. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Uh, but his first four films, I think, are masterpieces. Yeah. I, for a very long, contended that he was the best filmmaker alive and then started to feel like he was getting caught up in his own shit. So this film, which had been titled Radagast for a long time. Yeah, and is was now filmed, a hidden life. Right. Filmed, uh, which is a far more generic title. Yeah. Filmed several years ago with a mostly German cast has been very exciting to me. The prospect of him uh, shaking up. Now, that's what he said years and years ago, that this is a conventional narrative. I want to tell a story. But that was uh, three years in the edit room ago. Right. So who knows what the film's become? Because, you know, Adrian Brody also thought he was the lead of Thin Red Line. What's German for twirl? (laughs) Right. Uh, I'm very excited, though. I mean, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. I would like to see him try something kind of uh, different. Uh, Celine Sciamma. Uh, a Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's one of my uh, favorite unheralded uh, filmmakers alive uh, who did Tomboy mm-hmm. and uh, Girlhood and um, uh, Water Lilies, which is one of my favorite films of the 2000s. Uh, I, I think she's kind of one of the least discussed major filmmakers yeah. alive. And she's been making these films that are about 
uh, uh, gender politics and queerness and female identity, uh, things that I am not qualified to talk about, but recognize that she is depicting in ways that other people do not. Yeah, uh, and, and her I'm, graduating up into main competition is really exciting. It's very like, exciting you get, to you me. Just, you, just, you get the big premiere, you get the, the more of the focus, and I think that, you know, uh, can is in small ways. I mean, they're they're still you know lagging behind other festivals, but like they're at least somewhat trying in their very sort of stubborn French way right. to change a little bit. Right, know? and it's like I love Amol Devar, I love the Dardens, I love Bong Joon Ho, but these people are regulars, and mm -hmm. them getting included in competition doesn't tell me whether or not those films are going to be good. I hope right. they're all great. Right, but they might be wipeouts yeah. that got in because they have relationships. You know, they have histories with the festival. Right. So when something new breaks through that kind of membrane of like when the, 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 the graduates, names. Yeah, it's exciting. graduates. That's all yeah. exciting to me. Yeah. Um, well, we will have a lot more can coverage uh, coming up. I'm traveling there in the middle of May and we'll be there for the whole festival. So I'll have lots to talk about. Hopefully lots of twirling to write about. Oh, I, um, ho I hope there's some good twirls. Yeah. In the meantime... Griffin, everyone should watch The Tick. Again, it's available yes, on Amazon Prime. Is that right? Right. It's available on Amazon Prime. People think they don't have Amazon Video because they don't realize that Amazon Prime is Amazon is that, Video. Right. If you have the free shipping, you have it. If you don't have it, there are almost always, and I believe as we currently speak, uh, free one-month trials. Oh, there you go. Uh, so you could always sign up, watch 22 episodes of The Tick. Mm -hmm. They're half hours. It's an easy watch. And, uh, and then cancel, and I won't tell Daddy Bezos it's that... <laughs> That's what you did, um, um, but it is—it's—it's it's a show we work uh, incredibly, incredibly hard on. Yeah, um, I really love it. Uh, I think for people who love uh, superhero films and TV shows and dissect them in the way that we have today, it's a very sort of self-conscious uh, sort of dissection of uh, superhero storytelling tropes. And for people who. Um, uh, don't like superhero narratives, it is a very conscious dissection of superhero tropes. Yeah. Well, and, and for more dissection of tropes, people can listen to Blank Check, Griffin's podcast with right. the great David Sims. And dissection of tropes was the original name. For That's the right. Yeah. It's just it's a little, yeah, the hashtag was a yeah. little too long. A little mouthy. Uh, happy birthday to David Sims. Uh, Today? Today's his birthday. Whoa. Yep. Thanks yeah. for telling yeah. me. I was going to botch that Facebook one. Facebook told me, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyway, Griffin, uh, you're at uh, – what's your Twitter handle? Uh, Griff, Lightning Griff Lightning on all uh, social media platforms like Reese Lightning, but with the first half of my name. Uh, I'm at Rylas, Joanna. Joe wrote this. As ever, this episode was produced and edited by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best pre-review of Terrence Malick's new film, Premiering a Can, goes to Griffin Newman. Just a dick measuring contest for two and a half hours. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starts in Dea, at the center of a tennis triangle, and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people and a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.